Hey, welcome back to Parallel Passion. In this episode, I have a chat with John Chigi. He's an electrical engineer specializing in control system software. However, you probably know him from the podcast world. He runs the Engineered Network and hosts many shows, among which are two of my favorites, Pragmatic and Causality. I could speak with John for hours, which is why this episode is a tad bit longer. Hopefully you don't mind and will enjoy this as much as I did. Here's John. Hi, hi, John. Welcome to Parallel Passion. Oh, and hi, and uh, uh, thank you for having me. It's uh, pronounced Mia, isn't it, I think? Uh, it's Miha, but Miha. It's, it's good enough. <laughs> no, 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 I want to get it right. Miha, no worries. Miha, yeah. Um, I've, I've heard uh, my name pronounced in so many ways that I really don't care anymore. <laughs> yeah, it gets that way. My last name's a bit like that too. They, they mangle Chigi a thousand different ways, ways I never thought possible, but they've managed to <laughs> mangle it. So, But yeah, you do kind of get desensitized, don't you? Yeah, and also for me, because my name ends with an A, a lot of, especially Americans, think I'm a girl. So, um, okay. I've, I've had uh, people uh, being surprised unexpectedly when, when they saw me and I wasn't, I wasn't a girl. Okay. <laughs> okay, fair enough then. Well, I, I for one, I did not make that assumption, but um, yes. <laughs> Anyhow, yeah. fair enough then. Yeah, so where I want to start is actually um, all my previous guests were like um, Ruby or high-level um, software developers and you, you're something else. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're a bit deeper than we go ever. So, um, mm. wh- why don't you just briefly explain what it is that that you do? Um, okay, it's it, the funny thing with that question is it's a very broad question. Um, I, I've actually dabbled in a lot of different things, and uh, technically by degree, uh, I'm an electrical engineer. But the vast majority of my career, I haven't actually done. Uh, specifically electrical engineering uh, consistently. I've done more programming and software and uh, industrial control systems than I've done uh, traditional electrical engineering. I mean, I've done fault current calculations, switchboard designs, um, you know, things like that. But I haven't done that for the vast majority of my career. So, most of the time I've spent in control systems, probably about 12, 13 years now in my career, I've been pretty well exclusively playing with control systems. And control systems are very different from uh, high-level languages. They're assen- they're essentially just a, a step above machine code. Um, and you write in different formats like ladder logic and function block diagram and different things. And it's um, it's a very different style of programming because what you're dealing with is you're dealing with uh, a lo- logical action and reaction. So, if this inductive proximity switch goes off and detects this, then your actuator moves that and, and so on and so forth. You know, conveyor belts and all sorts of different things. And um, it's it's really fascinating work, and uh, I, I really do enjoy it. It's uh, because unlike uh, software, which I, I think of high level software as uh, an infinite canvas, you can kind of build and do whatever you want to do. But when it comes to interacting with the real world, it's limited. And whereas what I tended to do more of is. Uh, uh, what I do is almost exclusively has a reaction in the real world. So, you, you click a button and then 500 kilometers away, a pump starts <laughs> uh, or a valve opens, you know, stuff like that. I mean, it's cool, but in a different way. But is it then like simpler by design? So, more like just mainly if-else statements or can it get like super complex as, as well? Uh, yeah, a bit of both. Uh, so, one of the things is uh, we start off obviously the very basic stuff like, you know, if this, then that. And, and obviously, so... So let's let t- take a motor for example. Uh, if you want to, you want to start a motor and just say it's a, a direct online starter. So it's either on or off, and it's running or it's not running, kind of thing. 
Um, so, there's no variable speed in there. It's just on or off. So, that you would say that that motor has an, a local mode and a remote mode. So, you can put in local mode and it'll only be operatable from, the, from right next to the motor. But if it's in remote, then the controller has access to it and then the controller can tell it to start and stop. Uh, and that could be in a manual mode or an automatic mode. So, in a manual mode, an operator has to select on and off, in which case it's dead simple. But once it gets into automatic, that's when things get more interesting. And you can say, well, I want to automatically start and stop this in a sequence. I want to start and stop at a certain time of day. I can have a whole bunch of logical conditions. Like we've had, I've done systems where uh, we are optimizing for electrical uh, usage, electrical power usage. So uh, electricity, for example, the cost of electricity varies during the day. So you you want to run these booster pumps that will lift however many thousand cubic liters of water, cubic meters of water um, from point A to point B. You want to do that as cheaply as possible. So you'll run that at certain hours during the night. And so, you know, you, uh, we did a system during time of day that simply started the, the booster pumps in a sequence and it would only run at certain hours of the day. And that changed during the year. So, some of that was, you know, a little bit more complicated. And then, of course, you've got feedback control loops and, and other things that get a little bit more complicated as well. So, it can be simple and it can get quite complicated. So, a bit of both, actually. Now, I, I guess you can um, describe any software this way. Yeah, true. Uh, every, every project starts simple, but then it gets super complicated. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and then you look back two months later and wonder, what was I thinking when I wrote that? <laughs> yeah, but anyhow. No, what, what usually happens is like, who wrote this stupid code? And they're like, oh, it was me. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> my, name's <laughs> on the, my, my, name's in, my name's in the commit line. My name's in the comments. Oops. Uh-huh. Yes, that was me. Sorry. <laughs> mm. Yeah. And do you use versioning systems in, in that kind of code? Hopefully. Well, yeah, it's it's that's a disappointed sort of sigh that I, I just um, let out because <laughs> I wish I could. The problem I have with, well, I, mean, I have many problems with control system software, but the software that is given to us. So, if you go to a company like Siemens or Schneider or Rockwell Automation and you buy one of their controllers, you don't get to choose what uh, development environment you use. You will use what they give you and they will give you one oh and that's it and the the, pro- the problem is that once you learn how like siemens for example they call their somatic manager so if you get used to using somatic manager uh, and then you have to change to the um the rockwell you know product uh, rs logics they're very very different and nothing's where you would expect some of them have limited version control some of them have absolutely nothing um and rather like uh so some of them have like uh, code comparison tools so, you can sort of do a rough comparison and see what the changes were, but it's kind of like doing that in a two word documents. Every single little thing, like, oh, someone shifted the column slightly. Yep, nope, that's a difference. I'll flag that. And you try and do that with two word documents and you get 10,000 differences. <laughs> and when in fact, all someone did was correct a comma and you're like, yeah, that worked really well. So, it's, it's, it's horrible. It's frustrating. The version <laughs> control we do has to be very manual. So, we have to uh, be very methodical in how we approach um, code revisioning. Uh, so, we, I try and get the younger engineers to follow that as religiously as possible. Some do it better than others. But yeah, <laughs> it, su- it sucks, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine because um, for me, like not being able to choose my own tools, I think that would drive me insane. Yeah, it sucks. um but how did you even get into into this field because um like as far as i know you work like in water treatment systems and like on all oil pumps and stuff like that it it was a bit bizarre i started out 
uh, my career going in a few different directions. I, I started out doing uh, some work at Nortel Networks, which was in uh, first I started out doing reliability predictions and failure analysis, uh, which is probably where I probably where my my fascination with cause and effect sort of started way back in the beginning, like twenty years ago. But um, since then, I moved across into another company uh, in Boeing. And uh, Boeing had a lot of defense contracts. And the defense contracts I was working on, uh, it was a very large government contract because, uh, you know, people don't, maybe people realize, maybe they don't, but but military contracts are hideously boring and terribly, uh, there's a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. And I didn't appreciate that when I went in and I'm like, you know, this whole secret classified top secret thing, it's uh, it's really boring. <laughs> it's really <laughs> There's really nothing exciting about it. At least uh, maybe the stuff I was working on was boring and all the other people got the good stuff. But anyway, so I found that was two years of tedium. And so, I needed a break and I wanted to go for work for a smaller company. An opportunity came up to work for a a company called MPA Engineering and they were doing industrial control systems. So, I'd I'd sort of briefly worked um, during my degree at the Stanwell Power Station, which is a coal-fired power station. It was a baseload plant. And I messed around with their Siemens DCS, something called the Teleperm. Uh, which is you know, well and truly outdated now, but at the time it was cutting edge. I had light pens and everything. That was like really awesome. Anyhow, um, I still remember using the wire wrap guns on the uh, putting wires on the terminals, which is something you don't see anymore. Thank goodness those things are terrible. <laughs> yeah, sounds dangerous. Oh man. Anyway, oh no, it was it wasn't dangerous. It was just um, all of the wires had a solid copper core, and they had a a thin. Uh, sheath on the outside of them and you would insert this into the wire wrap gun it literally looked like a little gun <laughs> and you insert the end in and it would strip the wire and then you'd push it onto this metal stalk and as you pushed the gun it spun around and it wrapped the uh, the copper core around the post the steel post and it would literally sort of like come back towards you as it did it so they called that a wire wrap tool um, and it was pretty much the only way that you could get the wires to go onto these stupid, you know, bars. And the bars were hideously close together. And there was so, many, so much risk of them shorting out. And it was just, oh, it was terrible. Sounds so, fun. <laughs> oh, thank goodness that technology died. Anyway, um, so I'm getting off track. My point was that was my first exposure to control systems, but I didn't really play too much with them. And when I worked at MPA Engineering, it started out because uh, they had a lot of contracts in water and wastewater treatment. So, that's where I started out my my serious career, I guess you could call it, in controls. And um, so, we built switchboards, motor control centers, and I programmed. We we're, were a Siemens integrator. So, we predominantly did Siemens PLC. So, I cut my teeth on uh, an S7, S5s, S7s. And uh, I even, although technically not a Siemens PLC in the beginning, it was a t- uh, Texas Instruments, the, the TI-505s which Siemens eventually uh, bought and rebranded. But the bottom line is I did a lot of work in Siemens uh, for quite a long time. And uh, then I jumped across to another company called KBR. And uh, KBR were doing some contract work uh, for a a project for a water pipeline. And that was using Schneider Premium, uh, (laughs) Modicons, Schneider Modicon Premiums. Oh, that's a mouthful. Anyway, so that was another interesting project. That was the biggest one I'd done to that point. It's about 120,000 data points, which was pretty good. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, it was pretty impressive. And um, there were about 46 PLCs, 58 touchscreens, and about, uh, I think we had about uh, six servers and about 14 clients. So that was a decent sized SCADA system. Uh, fiber optic, private fiber optic network um, it was pretty good. 
pretty cool actually really enjoyed that one yeah i, I think i could talk about with you on, on this for for hours but mm. uh, yeah this podcast is not about engineering it's about your sorry um, it, no 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 it's, it's not your fault um <laughs> i i'm just really interested in this but um yeah so let's let's talk about your um hobbies for example if i don't know if i can even call it a hobby but the way um how I know about you is obviously podcasting and uh, sure. pragmatic. The the first one, yeah. Um, for um, for lack of better terms, I guess. Um, so how did you become interested in in podcasting, and where did you begin? Okay, so uh, a long time ago, um, not in a galaxy far, far away. <laughs> I um, <laughs> this one, this planet. I uh, was on Twitter, and I was, I was really getting into Twitter, and I'd uh, about the mid two thousands. I'd finally just had enough of my windows machine and i uh, i built a hackintosh then i eventually built bought uh an emac uh, like an education mac the big i think it was a 17 inch um cathode ray tube screen this thing was weighed a ton and okay <laughs> not a ton literally but 20 kilograms so you know no one was going to steal that and run off down the street, <laughs> um, or at least not going very fast anyway. So, I, I bought one of these things and I um, started started blogging in about 2009 about Apple stuff because I, you know, I came across obviously, you know, Daring Fireball and I followed Macworld and um, I was listening to podcasts from the uh, Australian Macworld as well as the um, Macworld in the States. There was an Australian Macworld? I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, there was. Yeah. Uh, Matthew J.C. Powell um, was the editor for quite some time. Mm. Um, and uh, it was uh, it was really good. I, I quite enjoyed it because it was sort of the local take on Apple because Apple's approach to Australia was at that point anyway was, was very different um, from North America. Uh, obviously, that's changed in, in recent times. Australia is now one of the launch countries. So, when new products come out, it'll come out usually in Australia and New Zealand pretty much of the time. Not every time, but most of the time. Yeah, we're still being treated like Australia used to be. We're like third third world country. <laughs> well, fingers crossed. Though. Apple are getting better. They are getting better at simultaneous world re- global releases of their products. But yeah, and it's not just releases. It's also pricing. Like for Europe, they just sure. change the dollar sign to euro sign, which um, yeah, with with the current uh, currency exchange, it's a huge difference. Yeah. Oh yeah, and, and Australia was similar. Uh, they actually put a markup on the Australian prices for the longest time, and um, they've brought it closer to parity now, which is good. And um, I say parity, I mean like if I'd have bought in US dollars exchange rate, you know, plus GST, and the price pretty much is on within a few dollars. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're a lot better than they used to be. So this is all sort of got me down the road of, of of blogging, and then I made some friends on Twitter, and there's one in particular a guy called Clinton Phillips. And Clinton uh, was bugging me ceaselessly to um, <laughs> to start a, to start a podcast, and I said, "Look, I don't have any gear. I don't know what I'd say. Um, I don't know what to do, <laughs> you know." Uh, and so we started uh, recording a podcast. Uh, it was roughly every week, maybe every second week. We recorded um, over a six month period. We did twenty episodes, and uh, it was called the Existential Podcast. And um, it was one of those ones that. I look back now and I listen to it and I was, I'm, I'm really quite ashamed because it's like, oh, geez, the audio is terrible. Listen to how I'm talking. Uh, I was so nervous. But that's a good thing. In general, like if you don't look at your old stuff and you're not, oh, what did I do there? It means you're not progressing. So yeah. looking back at old stuff and being ashamed, I think, is a sign of progress. So Yeah, 
that's a fair point, and 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 yeah, I, I think you're right. I think you've got a point, and I I, I do uh, um, I do realize that if I hadn't have started somewhere, I probably wouldn't have started. So so after that, uh, it was um, I sort of gave it away for a bunch of different reasons. I, I didn't. I just how do I say? I wasn't feeling it. Mm-hmm. It was just you know like we were, we we're going through the motions towards the end and. Uh, I, I guess my heart wasn't in that 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 particular show. It wasn't really what I wanted to be doing. And, um, you know, anyway, so put down the mic. That was in 2012. So, shortly after, well, I say shortly, six months, 12 months later, something like that, Clinton, of course, was bugging me to, to start up another, another <laughs> podcast. I'm like, so, at the same time, I was approached by- um, a guy uh, called uh, Benjamin Alexander, and he was starting a his own podcast network uh, called uh, Fiat Lux. And he approached me and said, because uh, because we'd been chatting on Twitter, and he was getting a bunch of other guys together that I was also friends with on Twitter uh, that had podcasts already. Uh, and he said, "Look, we're we're starting something. Would you be interested?" And I said, "Well, I had this idea for a show, and I'd like to call it Pragmatic." And he said, um, okay, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll give it a shot, see how it goes. And after that, I guess, as I say, the rest is history. But uh, <laughs> it, it gets it gets a little bit more complicated after that. But um, uh, long and the short of it, uh, that's how I got into podcasting anyway. I started listening to Pragmatic um, after you were a, a guest on the Storming Mortal, obviously. Ah, um, Ange. By, by our, yeah, our good friend Ange. <laughs> yes. Um, and um like after listening to two or three i downloaded the whole back catalog and, and listened to everything wow um oh yeah no it's it's really really good content and i really enjoyed it um i i think it would be a stretch to say i learned a lot because i tend to forget a lot as well <laughs> but uh, at least i was exposed to um a, a lot of things that otherwise um I, I guess i wouldn't be um and I was really sad when, I don't know how long ago was this, like two years, a year and a half, when yeah. you completely stopped and said, like, I'm, I'm done with podcasting. I was like, ah, it's it's a shame. Yeah. And then then you come back, it's not just with one podcast, but with three podcasts and with a whole network around <laughs> it and everything. So, Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> how did that happen? Okay. So, uh, I stopped doing Pragmatic because it was eating up a lot of my time. And I, I mean... I mean, a lot of my time. I was spending minimum episode preparation. It was about ten hours, and that doesn't that didn't that was just preparation. That didn't include recording, editing, uh, and posting it. Which you know, for a two-hour show, um, editing is about four or five hours, and then doing up the notes and posting it, maybe another hour. So looking at about six hours for a two-hour um, two hours of recording time. And it wasn't just that. It was organizing guests. It was organizing uh, just trying to get schedules to line up because I live in a dodgy time zone, right? No no one, hardly anyone I've ever had on Pragmatic was in my time zone. There were a handful of exceptions, uh, people like Russell Ivanovich, for example, and even mm-hmm. him, he was in Adelaide. And, you know, like Adelaide's like uh, half an hour different. So, it's close enough, but it's a weird time zone. It's even weirder than mine. <laughs> anyway, so, I kind of, I, I sort of reached that limit and- I, I didn't want to, but at the same time, I kind of felt I had to. The problem was that I didn't appreciate just how many people enjoyed the show. Um, I mean, I knew the download numbers and I was, you know, I was getting regular sponsors and everything. And uh, I, I guess looking back, I probably shouldn't have. But the reality is that I, I, that was a choice I made. And in the following months, 
I realized from the fallout, because I had a lot of fallout from a lot of the fans that said, how could you do that? And I'm like, well, I just, <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, and sorry. So, sorry for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fine. It's fine. Um, it's, 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 it's okay, because what it did is it sort of in, it inspired me to give it another crack. And this time, I sort of set myself a few different rules around what I was going to do. And one of the things that I wanted to do was I wanted to focus on a different kind of show. I'd had a specific uh, episode. Um, it was uh, episode 11, I think, if memory serves. It was called Cause and, Cause and Effect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that particular one looked at an airplane uh, crash, actually. And it always stuck in my mind about um, the silliness of that, like the ha- how a bit of sticky tape over an airport like a, a port that uses used to sample air pressure could lead to a, a crash. And it just to me, it's like a bit of tape. That's all it was, a bit of tape. And that sort of, I guess I felt like I wanted to do something more like that rather than just sit down and explain what I, my take on a certain kind of technology and sort of share share sort of knowledge in a, I guess, I, I, I'm told it's entertaining. I, I try and just impart, what my take on on some aspect of technology, whether it's solid state drives, whether it's you know whatever it might be, radio doesn't matter, RFID tags, you name it, I've covered it pretty much, I think. But you know the thing was that I wanted to do a show that was different, and so that was the idea of behind causality. And someone described it as an audio documentary, um, like Seconds from Disaster or like uh, Air, what um, they call it, Air Mayday. I think it's given, there's a few different shows on, on documentaries on like Discovery Channel. Yeah, but I think the biggest difference with with them and causality is that you actually look at look at it from engineering perspective, exactly. which is really interesting for me. Yeah. Um, like for example, the Concord episode or the uh, Stava Dam, which mm. happened like not that far away from where I live, and I never That's heard right. about it. Mm. And then I was just like reading into it, and it's how how did this even happen like this shouldn't have happened this is no. insane and um luckily i'm living on a plane like it's there's no dams around me but if i would be in the valley like i would be scared if there's a if there's like yeah. a, any sort of dam like I, I always figured i was strange uh, compared to other people because i would drive past a damn wall and i wouldn't be like oh how cool is that i'd be like eyeing it suspiciously and i'm like Okay, can we just keep going now? Thank you. <laughs> Moving on. Hurry, hurry. Good, good, done. Thank you. Because I, I don't know, but but yeah, you're right. And and I wanted to look at it from an engineering perspective. So I wanted to, uh, because as an engineer, we're entrusted with different aspects of of what we build. We're entrusted with people's lives sometimes, not all the time, not every day, and not every decision. But sometimes it does come up where you have to make a decision that could, if it goes wrong, uh, could kill someone or injure someone uh, to a lesser or greater extent. And that's the sort of thing that you have to take very seriously. And some people, uh, I think, when when they make documentaries like Seconds from Disaster, it's all like- um, I don't know. Oh, and in the next 10 seconds, it's going to explode. And it's like, oh, goodness. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And those fake actors that they always show, that's so yeah. demeaning yeah. and so stupid. Like, why yeah. are you doing it's this? Cheesy. It just look, yeah, it just looks bad. Yeah. It's cheesy. Exactly. And I, and, and I don't like it either. It's always sort of rubbed me up the wrong way. So, I set about trying to make one that was, that was the way I wanted to make it, which was, um, if you're an engineer, how would you stop it? How how could you prevent this realistically? And in almost every case that I've covered, um, there has been something or some decision that someone could have made that would have prevented it. And, and 
you know, things like Fukushima is another good example. They, mm-hmm. they chose to lower the height of that wall where they mounted the booster pumps and they did that and they did that to save money because they could get away with smaller pumps because they didn't have as much head pressure to lift uh, the seawater up for cooling. It's like all they had to have done was have left them at the natural height of that cliff and they would have been fine. Mm. But that's not what they chose to do. They chose to save money and that was the consequence. Now, you could argue, oh, well, you know, there's a million things that could possibly go wrong. How could you possibly predict that? But the point of the episode, particularly about Fukushima, was they sh- they pushed to drive cost. They had flawed assumptions and now everyone suffered as a result. So, what I learned from that is- it's not all about money. Get all of your assumptions right first. And they, 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 they assumed the tsunami, the biggest tsunami they'd ever seen, was one that was recorded in Chile on the other side of the world. And that was their basis of design, that wave height. But the truth is that Japan's been hit by, you know, tsunami for thousands of years. All they had to do was go inland and see how far the debris field went inland to know, oh, dear, okay, it went 10 kilometers inland. So, we can estimate the wave height was approximately, oh, yeah, okay, we shouldn't put the pumps down that low. Yeah, and you think, like, living in Japan, they would know that. You'd think. They are constantly hit with earthquakes and tsunamis. Yeah, but you see, stuff like that worries me, you know, and I wanted to, I wanted to do something that had more lasting value. You know, there's a lot of podcasts out there that are just week in, week out, well, what happened today, you know, hey, what beard trimmer are you using this week? It's like, <laughs> I don't, I mean, my wife, my wife refers to some television shows as bubble gum for the brain. Like you watch it and your brain switches off and has a holiday. It's like your consciousness walks out the door, but you're looking at the screen and it's like, uh, okay, yep, good. It's over. Oh, I just lost an hour of my life. That's great. <laughs> and you know what yeah, I mean? It's like- Yeah, I know what you mean, but sometimes there's also a place for that kind of shows. Yeah. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. I know I listen to way too many podcasts that are just saying the same news again and again. Like, I've, yeah. whenever like a new iPad comes out, I hear about it in like four shows, which is mm. ridiculous, but you know. Yeah, that's right. But see, I, I absolutely, I'm not saying that shows like that shouldn't exist. I'm not saying that at all. I'm simply saying that there, those shows are everywhere. Mm-hmm. The, the, you, you, that's, the, I didn't want to just make- that mm-hmm. because and that's kind of why I guess that's the, the the nut of why I stopped doing existential was simply because it felt like every other podcast out there that I listened to and I just want to do something different. So there was causality. And um, after a while, I decided that I wanted to do something that because not everything is about cause and effect that I think about. I don't walk down the street and think about disasters every waking minute. <laughs> um, I think I'd be a basket case if I did. <laughs> so, uh, so there was other things that I do think about and I I, I have been accused of overthinking things, and that's okay. So I wanted to do a podcast about just that, and uh, and ha- that was the idea behind analytical, which was anything else that didn't fit into something that 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 felt like it'd be a good pragmatic episode uh, and wasn't a, a disaster or a cause and effect uh, thing for uh, causality. But in any case, yeah, yeah, and like to quickly go back to causality, what I really um, like about probably well, like. It's interesting about almost every of those episodes that there were not like one thing that they screwed up, but it was like a series of things Mm. that if only they would do one of those things, things would Mm -hmm. be fine. But it's just like, it's it's a string of wrong decision after wrong decision after wrong decision, and then just everything breaks. And it's like for basically every one of those episodes. Yeah. And and this is the this is what we learn when we we dig into the cause and effect of of pretty much any disaster or incident, 
And if you listen very carefully, and this is another thing, it, it's a, if you listen very carefully to every episode of Causality, um, you'll find I, nev- I, I should never say the word accident because I don't believe anything is an accident. Mm-hmm. I believe that you can prevent these things. You can. If you actually think it through, all you have to do is stop one element of stupid and then it, then it won't happen. And this is one of the things that I'm, I've been working in oil and gas now for a few years. And one of the things that they that they um, they talk about a lot is near misses. So, a near miss is, let's say you needed five things to line up for someone to get injured. Mm-hmm. Well, or, you, or if you get a near miss, a near miss means that four of those things lined up today, but that fifth one didn't. So, therefore, no, no injury was recorded. But that near miss came way too close. Mm-hmm. So, we- place as much emphasis on near misses as we do on incidents and that's why um i really do hate the analogy about swiss cheese too because i hear people talk about the swiss cheese uh, model where all the holes have to line up and i'm thinking you've seen swiss cheese right all the all the <laughs> holes are different sizes they don't line up you can put five slices next to each other and you won't see through it so i don't get that anyway yeah um, but i mean in a lot of those cases like um hindsight is twenty twenty. like it's very easy to look back and say, oh, if only they would clear out that dam, it would be fine. Yeah. But it's another thing to to be present and look around you and like, what are we doing wrong? Because I, I think with a lot of organizations and um, like just people in general, you got used to doing a thing a certain way and then you don't challenge the assumptions ever. And like, even if you if you hire someone new, you just Tell them, like, this is how we do things. Why do you do it? Well, this is how we do them. Yeah. Like, there is no one to challenge those assumptions. And, and I think that's a big problem in organizations in general. Yeah, it is. And it's, it's, a, um, it's a human behavioral trait because we don't want to look like we're uh, – we don't want to sound stupid in front of other people. We don't want to um, – we don't want to be annoying, uh, generally speaking. I, I guess some people <laughs> want to be annoying, but you know, uh, you know, it's like we don't want to. We don't want to question everything. We go into a new job, and we don't want to sit there and pick apart every single detail. Oh, why do you do this? Why do you do that? You know, why do you push on the door instead of pull on the door? I mean, you don't want to ask a thousand and one what we might be afraid that people will think we're we're stupid or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, th- there's a whole bunch of reasons why. And um, I mean, you're absolutely right. Challenging. Uh, the accepted norms is the best way to break down uh, learned bad behaviors uh, that could lead to incidents. And um, there's not enough of that and there needs to be more of it, I think. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Oh, wow. We are really going down here. <laughs> well, that's okay. So, I mean, but that's that's podcasting. Um, yeah. Well, you're used to it. I'm. I'm. I'm not. I don't do. I don't do podcasting on people dying. It's like, oh, just casually mentioning. Oh, yeah, two thousand people died because of the dam. Yeah. the The thing that gets me about Starva Dam was the fact that in a, in some of these disasters, you have people that are working in a in a facility, and it's the risk they sign up for. You know, like on Challenger, for example. Right. The astronauts knew the risks. They knew what they were signing up for. They knew there was a chance that that it could explode and they could die, mm-hmm. or you know, if they got into space, it, they could, um, you know, they could die. They they knew what they were signing up for to an extent, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> but when you got something like Starva Dam, you know, the 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 the, de- the count of the people that died, it consisted of men, women, and children, right? So these are like kids at school, kids playing in the park, walking down the street, absolutely nothing to do with the dam. Probably didn't even know there was a dam there. Yeah, and and they got killed for no for no reason, it's it you know, and that's that's what 
that's what makes it hard. You know, that's that's why it's that's why it matters. You know, in engineering, you have to protect and think about protecting everybody. It's not just you know the people that accept the risks that work nearby. It's it's everybody. It's the environment as well. It's everything. So it's, yeah. anyway. But I guess we're back to like just being humans, and we don't see, we don't look into the future and what could happen. We just care about now, and we just care about, I don't know, getting that paycheck or whatever, or getting maximum profits for for our company. We don't care if like just this dam collapses or whatever. It's, it's not like we don't care. Yeah, I mean, not not us, but like people in general. Well, the thing about Starva, the thing about Starva Dam, and I'd also add is another similarity with. Um, uh, Flint, Michigan, mm-hmm. was that they just had the wrong people. So, they had the wrong people running it. They didn't know what they were doing. So, um, with Flint, Michigan, for example, uh, they didn't have any corrosion control and they had lead pipes. So, without corrosion control, uh, you're going to let lead into the water and lead is bad. And <laughs> it's just, you know, the, the, the people that were doing it, when they changed the water sources, they didn't put any corrosion inhibitor in there because they didn't know what they were doing. Mm. So, yeah, yes, they're going from paycheck to paycheck, but they also had the wrong people for the job. But anyway. Yeah, let's let's move on. Never mind. <laughs> yes, let's move on. Um, so, you're doing uh, analytical and causality solo, but pragmatic, you're now teaming up. Um, why did you why did you decide to have like a co-host or for lack of a better word? Um, I, I don't have a fixed... I don't have a fixed co-host, really. I mean, uh, Vic is my most common co-host, I suppose, um, Vic Hudson. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's been around since about episode 39, 38 or something like that. And uh, and Vic's fantastic. He's always, um, if, if there's any topic. So, okay. So, here's the problem with Pragmatic is that I want someone that, I, that has uh, experience and interest in the topic that I have interest in. Mm-hmm. And su- and maybe surprisingly, maybe not surprisingly, sometimes that's hard to come by. Uh, I've I've asked a lot of people to come on the show, and most people say yes, but it, that's not the problem. The problem is finding people that have the knowledge and have the interest. And yeah, every now and then uh, you get someone on as a guest that uh, their schedule aligns, their knowledge and experience and enthusiasm aligns, and it's amazing. Uh, other times I can't find someone. And um, in those cases, I still want to do the episode. And um, and Vic is a very good sounding board. He sort of, <laughs> you know, he, he's he's good at sort of like ticking things along. Uh, people have people have com- compared um, those some of the episodes where um, where Vic sort of just plays the sounding board a lot. He um, it's a lot a little bit like the way Hypercritical was for some some of those episodes where Dan Benjamin would just simply let John John Syracuse just go for it, you know, and <laughs> yeah, just be just be John, yeah, just be uh, just like fifty five minutes of John Syracuse talking nonstop with a break every now and then, um, and Dan stopping to do an ad read every now and then. So it's kind of a now some episodes are pragmatic like that, and I've I've actually been criticised for having an inconsistent format, and I kind of thought well. If I want to talk about, you know, solid state drive, sometimes it's hard to find someone that 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 wants to, and you know what I mean. Oh yeah, yeah, no, no, I know, but uh, like, I mean, people will criticize everything, so it doesn't matter. Well, that's true. That's so, true. Um, yeah, people, anyway. people are gonna people. Um, yeah, I, I guess one of the example of the first guest, so that's like really uh, knowledgeable and interested in the topic, was uh, Marco Arment about coffee. Oh yes. Um, so. 
were you in like deep into coffee before that episode or was that sort of um like which set it into motion okay so the story behind coffee with me personally is is um it's not what you it's it's a bit different cuz i didn't drink coffee for most of my life and haven't actually i only started drinking coffee in recent years and what happened is i used to be very overweight and it was affecting my health and i tried lots of different diets and it hadn't gone well. So, I made a, uh, a drastic uh, decision and not one that I took lightly, I'd, I'd like to add. I, I thought about this for a very long time and did a heck of a lot of research. So, you think I put 40 hours of effort into researching uh, episode 62 of Pragmatic, for example, which I did. Um, that's my record. <laughs> um, never, never again, never again. Uh, anyhow, and I did like triple that because this was surgery- uh, and I wanted to make sure I knew as much as possible about it before I had it done on myself. Uh, so, I actually had a gastric sleeve um, weight loss surgery. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that was that I used to really like um, Diet Coke or Pepsi Max or whatever, you know. And the problem with that is that once you constrict the size of your stomach, anything that is carbonated, and that includes things like sparkling wines, beers- uh, so any soft drink or pop, as the Americans call it, anything fizzy um, that has carbon uh, ca- carbon dioxide bubbles in it, when you drink it, it causes intense searing pain in your stomach, oh. which is an instant turnoff. Oddly enough, uh, yeah, I would I would think so. <laughs> like you have one swig of it, oh that tastes lovely. Ow, 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 ow. Okay, not having that anymore. So I still liked the caffeine and. Just, you know, I found that caffeine helped wake me up. the So, okay, I'm going to try coffee. So, I started out slowly and gradually progressed and I started using an AeroPress and I, I started experimenting with cold brews and I made nothing but cold brews for a long time. Then I got into espresso. So, I kind of with, went with Marco and coffee. I'd heard him mention coffee a few times uh, on, uh, on um, Build and Analyze. And so, when I- I asked if he'd be interested in doing an episode on coffee. He jumped at it. And I didn't realize why initially <laughs> because um, the reason was he was actually frustrated because he went- Because he was doing Accidental Tech Podcast at that point and, and he still is. But when he was doing on ATP, John Syracuse doesn't drink coffee. In fact, I'm pretty sure he drinks Sprite and water, something like that. Yeah. Um, and Casey, Casey Liss uh, has many times called it uh, the brown devil's juice which is a, an odd name for it. But yes, I, I know he means coffee. Yes, something like that. He's, he's very anti-coffee. Yes, he uh, is. Which I don't understand because it's like very widely consumed in the US. Yes, well, that's exactly right. Um, in fact, it was the US that popularized coffee, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, never mind that. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> so, so, Marco was sitting there, you know, coffee aficionado of sorts, um, or fussy coffee man, <laughs> and he had no outlet to talk about it. So, when I said, hey- would you be interested in coming on Pragmatic to talk about coffee? And he jumped at the chance. I didn't appreciate why. And then when he was on the show, he explained it. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so, so the coffee episode, which is episode 30, uh, remains the most uh, most downloaded episode, the most popular episode of Pragmatic. And I say popular in terms of downloads, not the fan favorite. The fan favorite was actually episode two, the battery problem. But I, I think Margo has a huge reach and it it's probably- not because of coffee, but because of Marco. Well, um, I might be I might be wrong, but um, he has a huge following. Well, yes, he does. And at that time, his following was not as large as it is now. Mm. But 
the truth is that we had follow-up episodes on coffee. Uh, so, we had a follow-up episode on coffee. And we also did another episode uh, where we talked about retail, our retail experiences, because we both worked in retail sales for a while. Mm-hmm. And um, neither of those, neither the follow-up episode nor the uh, nor the other episode that we did on, uh, on retail, uh, neither of those were anywhere near the scale of downloads as coffee. Mm-hmm. So- it, I'm not entirely sure it was Marco's pull necessarily. Oh, and Marco's also come back to do an episode about watch bands as well, about the upper watch bands. Mm-hmm. And that also did not download as well. So, I don't entirely think it was reach. I think it was just one of those things where the the guest, the topic lined up beautifully. So, like Swiss cheese holes. <laughs> sort of, <laughs> but not really. But yeah, <laughs> y- yeah, that's the general idea. But anyway, so yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, he's uh, he's roasting his own coffee, which is where I'm not uh, yet at, I guess. I'm tempted, but I haven't done it either. But we are somewhere where Marco isn't, and that is like home home espresso. Yes. Um, and did you did you go into espresso because you prefer the taste of espresso over pour over, or what drove you to to espresso? I think the the truth is that when you go out and buy a coffee in Australia. Practically nowhere will get you a pour-over coffee. Almost everything is based on an espresso, whether it's a- Oh, let me see. Um, Rattle off some crazy names. Well, obviously, there's lattes, cappuccinos, um, macchiatos, um, piccolos. Flat whites, I guess, are are popular down there. Uh, Yes. So, all of these are all based on the espresso shot. Mm -hmm. So, you kind of get used to- the way espresso tastes, I think, uh, compared to something like a pour over or even an AeroPress. But the thing is, I found that I have actually gotten into um, pour overs a little bit. And I found that a pour over coffee I can have without any sweetener or any milk at all. I can just have it black. Yeah. And I can- and and. It's like a slap in the face. It's, uh, it's, in, it's intense, but you can taste that subtle- the, all the subtleties in the coffee. Because I used to go on oh, these guys. No, no, no. This is rubbish. It's just, it's coffee. Right. Give me coffee. Oh, that tastes burnt. Okay. So, I, I finally figured out what burnt coffee tastes like. Yeah. Starbucks. <laughs> no. <laughs> um, and I've, I sort of got a lot better at, uh, at, at, at playing with temperature in the espresso machine to tweak my shots. But when it came to the subtleties of the flavor, it's, oh, this has got like a, a sort of berries and chocolate sort of a flavor to it. And, and I'd, I'd go through, of course, grind it and do a, through sh- a few shots in the um, espresso machine. And I'd be like, no, it doesn't. It just tastes like coffee. I mean, it's nice. It's smooth and it's not too bitter. I like it. it but then when I tried doing pour overs, that's when I finally got it. I'm like, oh, that's what they're talking about. Because when you do a pour over, you retain a lot of that depth of flavor is what I found. And that's probably why pour over is one of the reasons why they do the the coffee tasting is is almost exclusively pour over if I'm if I my understanding is anyway yeah they they do cuppings with basically they just um grind the coffee put it into a bowl and then like add some hot water stir and that's it and then you just they taste it yeah it it is yeah more like french press i guess um mm. than it is espresso or anything like that but um again a- apologies to our listeners because we're gonna geek out a bit but <laughs> um what's it's really fascinating to me about espresso is just how complex it is and how hard it is to get all the variables just right. So yeah. that the grind is just perfect. And like when, when all the uh, 
Swiss cheese holes align, hmm. uh, you can get really, really good espresso where you taste like all of that stuff. But that's rare um, yeah, and hard to do. So pour over and um, AeroPress, I guess, are, are way easier ways to get there. And also, I guess, grinder is here uh, a huge difference because for pour over and AeroPress, you don't need as high quality grinder as you do for, for espresso. Because yeah. the differences in in like particle sizes mm. are not as pronounced as they are in, in espresso. As like as you know, when you make home espresso, when you just gr- grind it just a bit, just a tiny bit coarser, mm. everything like goes way faster. Yeah. It changes super fast. Yeah, it's it's uh, one of those things I I didn't appreciate until I got. So I started out with a a uh, Barazza Virtuoso um, grinder mm-hmm. and a Garcia Classic as my espresso machine, which was a great starter for the espresso machine. But my biggest problem was that it had uh, one boiler doing double duty. So, it was do- it was pulling the shots, but it was also doing the steam. And the problem with that was that it had, therefore, two temperature set points. Yeah. And if you want to do one, you had to have a f- the switch in one position. So, you had to have one switch position for uh, for doing the shot. And then you have another switch position to doing for doing the steam. And the problem was the reservoir was so small in- the grand scheme of things, because uh, I, I I like to texture the milk and do a latte is my favorite um, way of having coffee these days. And uh, the problem with that was that actually texturing the amount of milk that I needed took way, way too long on the Garcia. So, I eventually, you know, got, uh, I, I sold those and got another machine. And I, I, it's actually a Breville. It was very highly um, rated. Mm-hmm. And it's a Breville uh, BES 9 20 is it a dual boiler one or how does yes oh okay yeah that makes a huge difference oh enormous huge difference and the best part of it is i know it takes it took it took takes about twice as long to heat up so it'll take four to five minutes to heat up depending upon whether it's summer or or winter it takes a a bit longer in winter understandably um but it's um it can easily do uh a whole like probably about 600 mils of, uh, of milk and texture that inside 40 seconds, uh, which is really good. It's still not as good as a, a big Wager that you'd go to the, you know, the coffee shop and this huge thing that's probably got a 200-litre. Yeah, sure. But because you have two boilers, you can you can do both things at once or at least, yeah. like, immediately after. Yeah. Whereas if you have one boiler, you have to wait for it either to cool down or to heat up. Yes. And um, it's there's a lot of waiting there. So it's it's preferable to wait a bit to for machine to get warm. Um, mine takes a bit longer, like 20 minutes at least. Wow. Um, so, what sort of machine do you have? Um, I have um, ISO Alex Dueto, which mm-hmm. is basically um, E61 group head. Yep. Um, and um, there's a lot of machines like this. Um, Rocket makes, makes one, like ECM makes one. There are like a, a ton of machines that look like this. Basically, yeah, two boilers and this uh, E61 head, um, which is from as the name suggests, from 1961. So it's okay. pretty old and uh, cool. uh, tested and it works fine. But yeah, that's, that's the only smart thing, the only smart home thing I have in my apartment is the switch that turns it on uh, like half an hour before I wake up. Nice. So it's nice. Yeah, very good investment. Um, that And if even if hackers come in, like what are they going to do? Just heat up my machine. Yeah, that's it. I don't care. Well, yeah, I mean, you'll, you'll come home and you'll be right, able to make an espresso in the evening. That's That, that could be a good thing. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what sort of grinder do you use? Um, I have a Barazza Seti. Um, 
mm-hmm. right now or sete i don't know how how it's pronounced um yeah i think another one you mean which is uh, an es- uh, espresso grinder but i just turned 30 in january and i bought myself a, a new grinder which is german and i'm waiting for it for now like three months and i still don't have it um oh. Yeah, those Germans make everything by hand, and it takes a long time to get it. Um, but wow. yeah, right. anyway, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be a true hipster with uh, Malkinik uh, AK43. So that's a it's a big thing coming, and I'm really looking forward to that. Wow! All right, that sounds very nice. Uh, mine, mine, yeah. See, I bought mine as a set. Um, so the Breville, they have this one. the The grinder comes with it as a uh, they call it the smart grinder. Ah, yeah, yeah. Um, I know. I know. I, I yeah. saw it in in some YouTube reviews, and um, supposedly it's it's quite nice and very simple. That everything is nicely put together and, and all that. Yeah, it is. It is very simple. I do. I do. Well, I say it's simple. It is quite good. One of the problems I had with the uh, uh, the Virtuoso was that uh, it had a timer dial on the right, so and it had a push button on the front. So you two ways you could grind is you could put the group head uh, directly underneath. Uh, where the grinds came out and you could push the button on the front until you thought it was full or you could twist the dial on the side and it would die and then let go of it and then it was just a spring-loaded dial so it would then tighten mm-hmm, the, mm-hmm. the dial would just turn itself back to a home position and it would uh, just grind for that period so neither method was very precise and it wasn't repeatable and I know that all the true coffee nuts will tell you that you got to weigh your coffee and so on yeah you need the scale yeah yeah um, but yeah as for me well I'm, I'm too lazy for that so what i do (laughs) is the great thing of the smart grinder is that you can just set a time and the thing that i find you said before about getting the espresso shot just right (laughs) the thing you don't appreciate until you get into this is just how tricky that is and the the worst part of is once you dial it in and according to what i've heard that's the lingo that the that the uh, baristas use yeah so once you've dialed in your espresso um yeah. Anyway, that's only the second time I've ever said that. So, <laughs> it just, it feels weird to say it. But anyway, so, once you've dialed it in, uh, getting the grind setting right and then, of course, getting the amount of time right because the amount of time at that grind setting will fill the group head to a certain level. And then, once you get that and tamp it down, um, that has to then, once you put that in the machine and you get a perfect shot, the problem with that is that that works for that coffee at that point. Yeah. If you then have another shot directly after that, it's subtly different because the group head will be hotter um, and the grinds in the grinder, for example, if you've just changed your grind size, uh, sometimes that can take a couple of like a, a full shot before you get an entire um, group head full of um, uh, full of the same diameter. Yeah. Or if the humidity changes, which I don't know how often it is like at, at your place, but yeah. here- like during the during like in the morning, it's gonna flow completely differently than in the afternoon, mm. which is driving me insane because I drink like two or, or three, and like it's impossible to have a perfect dial in. Like it just it it will never happen. Well, well, the other thing I find also is the age of the coffee mm-hmm. because I I typically f- um, buy my coffee in five hundred gram uh, packets, so I don't. Um, so, I have enough there to, to last me about maybe a week and a bit, week and a few days, maybe, maybe a week and a half. Mm-hmm. It, it depends on, you know, how often. But anyway, so, when I'm doing that, I find that the first couple of days, I'll get it dialed in, it'll be perfect. And then after a few days, the coffee starts to age. And then after that, you have to adjust the, the, the dial. And so, I find that I always start out with maybe an eight on my, on my dial for the grind setting. Mm-hmm. 
And then after about three or four days, that goes down to a seven. Another three or four days, it goes down to a six. Otherwise, I'm, I am I don't get any crema. It just goes straight through. Uh, it doesn't pressurize, doesn't back pressure. So, it goes up to about um, seven bar of pressure. And then you just see the needle mm-hmm. gradually, slowly falling back. And you're like, yeah, okay, it's not maintaining pressure. So, you don't get any crema out of it or very little or lots of bubbles. And it's just like lots of big bubbles and it just tastes flat. And it's like, mm, yeah. So, yeah, the endless the endless uh, joys and challenges of trying to get a good shot in a, of espresso. <laughs> yeah, but that's what I love about it. It's like it's it's a challenge every time. Um, you cannot conquer it. No one has ever. Uh, people have tried, but, yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a nice hobby to have. You will lose a lot of time and frustration, but just like every once in a while, you will be rewarded with this perfect cup of coffee. Like, ah, oh, this is so good. Yeah. That is true, actually. When you do get it right and you have a sip, that first sip, it's like, oh, yes, <laughs> it's worth it. It's worth it at that point. And um, do you have any favorite types of, of coffees or like areas or um, regions or I don't know, um, flavors, I guess, do you prefer like fruity flavors or just whatever is on, on at your local roaster? Well, I find I've always found I like the taste of a good Colombian coffee. Um, I don't I don't mind Kenyan coffee. I know that's one of Marco's favorites uh, and he encouraged me to try that and I did. <laughs> but yeah, I, I still prefer Colombian overall, I think. Uh, I, I tend to go for, I, I tend to prefer a single origin over a blend, mm-hmm. except if I want a wake me up slap in the face. Uh, I'm, I'm still trying to find uh, a good, I, I want to try a full robusta coffee. And I know that maybe sound maybe sound crazy, but it's not crazy. It just won't taste very good. Well, that's okay. <laughs> um, I just want to, yeah, I just want a, a really hard slap in the face coffee. I want to try <laughs> an all robusta coffee once, at least once. Mm-hmm. But um, the only way I can seem to get it at the moment is green beans. No one roasts it that way. They they'll mix in a percentage of robusta in their arabica mix for to create their signature blend for the roaster of that you're going to the specialty roasters. They all do it, mm-hmm. but. Anyway, so but no, Colombian would be my favorite. How about you? Um, I I generally prefer the Ethiopian ones, so very fruity and berry flavors. Um, which sure. sometimes doesn't go well with with milk. Um, but sometimes it can be really good. Or I don't know if you ever had um geisha from Panama. Um, uh, no. Those those coffees are tend to be the most expensive ones. Uh, because reasons. Um, but I, uh, I've, I've had it a couple of times cause there's a, there's a roaster here in Slovenia, which sometimes have, uh, has those, um, those beans and, um, they, it's really, really good. It's like, it's super berry, uh, very fruity. It, you don't even know you're drinking coffee. It's just, it's like, like next level. Cool. I might have to f- track some of that stuff down. Yeah. I, I mean, the, um, the coffee culture in, in Australia and New Zealand is really good. So I'm pretty sure you can find whatever you want yeah one of the things i've 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 been doing occasionally in recent times is uh traveling to melbourne because there's uh, a bunch of people that we work with down there we've got offices down there and Mm -hmm. i went to a conference down there a couple times and now that i'm into coffee uh, i've started to 
travel around and um, there's a there's an app on, on my phone I found a while ago called Bean Hunter, mm-hmm, as in mm-hmm. coffee bean, yeah, yeah. Bean Hunter. I've, I've heard about it, but it's not useful over here. Oh, okay. Well, this one in Australia, they have people, well, obviously, the app's only is as good as people's rate. It's like Yelp, right? Yeah. You know, it's, if people aren't writing reviews, then it's worthless. Mm-hmm. But yeah, in any case, in Australia, that's the one that most people tend to use. So, it has the most reviews and it's generally pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. So, there's a couple of the, those shops. So, I look forward to going to Melbourne now because I, uh, I can have nice coffee, like really nice coffee. And I find every excuse I can to duck out into one of these roasters <laughs> and just grab a cup of coffee between <laughs> between sessions if it's within walking distance. But Yeah, there's another company in, in Melbourne. I don't know if you know it, uh, Barista Hustle. Yes. Um, and they they make just right now, I think, like three or four products. And I think I have them all because <laughs> I, I really like the way they do it. They're very... Um, engineering heavy mm. um unlike most of these um coffee companies which will just like throw some adjectives around these people actually like um try stuff out measure tds and try to compare and and do all sorts of tests with like um with different burst sets and all s- stuff like that which is like really geeking out to like next level um, but it's again, um, as an engineer, it's something I really, really like, and I just want to support them at, at that. And um, yeah, it's a it's a cool company, and what they're doing is really cool. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I'm, I've heard of them, but I haven't I haven't um, tried any of their stuff, so I might have to look into those actually. Yeah, I, I can really recommend the temper. It's the the best temper I've ever had in my hand. It's really mm. cool because the way it's designed is so that when you're pulling out, you're not affecting the coffee because the way it's shaped so the airflow can be can be good directly to the coffee because usually like if you have these tempers that are completely to the edge when you're pulling out you can create like a like a sort of vacuum yes and you can just raise coffee yes and with this one that doesn't happen and it's just it, it changes everything it's so much easier okay cool well you've piqued my interest i'll uh, i'll look into that <laughs> Anyway, let's move away. Let's move away from coffee and go to something completely different. Okay. Um, bat- batteries. Okay. Um, I know you have a, a big interest in, in batteries and all that. Um, and in previous episode with Jure, we discussed electric cars and yeah. how everything in the past 20 years, like if you look at, for example, smartphone, how everything has really progressed and how everything has, like the screen is amazing compared to what we had th- back then. The, pro- the processors are amazing compared to like whatever. But the batteries have seen like, I don't know, 10, 20% maybe improvements. Like where is the, where is the next thing and is, is it coming ever? Um, short answer is yeah, it, it is coming. It's just the, the problem with, with battery technology is that unlike all of the other things that you've mentioned, the, the, the physics behind the chemical reactions required uh, to make batteries of different kinds work, it's just, you know, like silicon is silicon and the advances that we make in doing a CPU, for example, and memory uh, have have not, not exactly equal applicability, but it has certainly got fringe uh, applicability to making screens in some in some cases. Like the, the technology required, I guess, is somewhat shared a little bit because it's all based on silicon mm-hmm. um, for the most part. I mean, okay, OLED's different story, I guess, but- you know, but with batteries, that is just not the case. The The chemistry behind them is vastly different and the, the mechanism by which they store charge is vastly different uh, between the different technologies. And what you'll find is that each of the different 
chemical reactions and chemistry of every battery type, it reaches a certain point and then it goes no further or it goes in really slow increments until there's a new battery technology. So, you saw that initially with uh, with NICADs mm-hmm. and uh, nickel cadmium batteries and they went as far as they could go. They had problems with memory effect and, and all sorts of issues. I mean, two heavy metals put together, you know, not, not, a, good, not a good outcome really. But then uh, nickel metal hydrides came along and they were superior in a lot of ways. Um, but then they leveled off and then we started seeing lithium and, and, and everyone said, well, lithium, the problem with lithium is that it's so reactive and, uh, you know, at least nickel, cadmium and such were not highly reactive metals, although they were heavy metals, they weren't highly reactive like lithium. Mm-hmm. But with time, they got better at making sure the batteries were safe. They had charge regulators in the batteries themselves to make sure they couldn't be overcharged, they didn't explode. Um, well, I say they didn't. <laughs> they didn't. <laughs> Let's not mention Note 8. or what? Yeah, the <laughs> Galaxy Note. And yes, and uh, there were also some of those um, uh, hoverboards, I think, that also had issues. So, it's not like it's a, it's, it still is a highly reactive and, you know, quite a risky kind of battery. It certainly isn't, isn't the safest kind of battery, but you just can't beat the energy density and the weight. Um, it just makes it so appealing. And so, the technology's reached a point where it's safe enough and good enough, but it's getting refined to a point at which you can't go any further. And the, the interesting thing is that if you were to take a bet on it, you'd say, well, lithium's reached the end. It can't go any further in terms of the energy density. Mm-hmm. So, there's, other, there's all sorts of other technologies that they're looking into, other, other battery chemistries. You know, the, there's like sodium, there's sodium batteries. Uh, they're looking into- um, I was looking at this the other day, but um, there's a bunch of different battery chemistries they're working on, but none of them are ready for prime time. They're all they're all still in the lab. They're all still experimental. And you'll see these new stories come up. Oh, revolutionary new battery technology. And it's like, oh, being trialed in a lab in somewhere in Texas or being trialed in a lab somewhere in, in um, you know, in France or Germany. Yeah. And it's like, well, well, that's great. But for me, it's weird because we've, we've been in this lithium-ion age for very, very long time now. Like, uh, un, uh, at least, I don't know, maybe it's because I'm not that old. But from from what I know, like, growing up, everything was like those uh, nickel, um, uh, NIMH, I think yep. they were nickel called. Nickel metal hydride. Yep. Yeah. Um, and then at some point, things got, everything was like light ion, uh, whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and, we're still in that age. There is there is no nothing new happening. And it's been like 20, 25 years where everything is just being powered with this same technology, which which is weird. Yeah, I don't. Uh, oh, well, let, let's just rewind a little bit then. Um, okay. When I was. Yeah. Okay. Hang on. It, it, when I was when I was a kid. Um, and yes, I, I'm, I know I am about 10 years older than you. But but when I was a kid, NICADs were considered to be pretty much the standard for rechargeable batteries. And prior to NICADs, there were no portable rechargeable batteries. Mm -hmm. We had rechargeable batteries, but they were lead-acid batteries. Yeah. (laughs) Not practical for your mobile phone. Well, no, it's not practical for a mobile phone, but it is practical for a car. Oh, yeah. So, the original lead-acid cell... Uh, was developed in 1857, I think, if memory serves. It was it was in the 1850s, 1860s. It was it's been around a while. So um, it, it's and, and it's it's basically the same battery design. Um, the only difference is that we moved about 20, 30 years ago. We moved away from 
uh, open wet cells or flooded cells, as they as they prefer to call them, uh, where you literally would unscrew a cap and you would pour sulfuric acid into them. <laughs> That's safe. <laughs> anyway, and we said, well, no, 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 we should seal that. So, now everything's like sealed lead acid or SLA batteries for short. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of them used uh, some of them use AGM uh, absorption um, uh, glass mat in them as well. There's a whole bunch of different things. Anyway, the bottom line is that lead acid batteries right now, if you lift the bonnet of every car, including I'd like to add a Tesla, they've all got a lead acid battery in there. Mm-hmm. Right. So, I know you say that 20 years and I'd say it's probably more like about 15, maybe 20 years at, at most, but lithium ion really hasn't been that widespread until the last 10, 15 years. So, I think it's become ubiquitous definitely in the last decade. Mm-hmm. It's like if, if you've got a portable device that is chargeable, you can bet you you can bet with pretty much 100% certainty it's going to have a lithium battery in it. Yeah. That is true and has been true for about, about a decade. Prior to that, you know, it was it was ramping up. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't quite at that level yet. Yeah, but right now there is no other technology that is ramping up. Well, no, but my point, yeah, I, I, I hear you. But my point is that lead acid batteries have been this this only battery in cars for a hundred years, and that's not changing either. Mm-hmm. So, what, what I guess what my point is is that um, twenty years in the grand scheme of things isn't that long. It feels like a long time, but it really isn't. Uh, and the chemistry needs to be proven of these new battery designs before they can actually become- Even if they can prove that they can store more charge, have higher energy density. Because the only reasons you would do a battery with different chemistry would be uh, the elements are more plentiful. So, they're easy or they're easier to extract because lithium is quite expensive to extract. Mm-hmm. Um, they could be easier to manufacture or they could have higher energy density and preferably all of those three. So, until they find a winner that suits those three or mo- or two of those three, we're not going to see a change from lithium. So, the whole approach Tesla is taking is they're not waiting for the next generation of battery chemistry to come out. They've picked lithium as their, as their, cell, their um, technology of choice. And instead of trying to find better technologies, like a lot of other companies, and simply saying, oh, yeah, well, we'll just wait till it becomes a, a something else comes out that's better- they're saying, we're going to go all in on lithium. And they've built the gigafactory, or the first gigafactory, and they say they're going to build lots more of them. So, the idea of that is that the economies of scale will drive down that price. So, you'll be able to get lithium batteries for next to nothing. And suddenly, a lot of the arguments against lithium, if you accept the safety problem with lithium, um, and they have other ways of addressing that. But the reality is that lithium is going to be with us for a, for the, for the quite quite a while. I would expect that you're going to see lithium batteries in vehicles and in electronics for at least another decade, maybe maybe, maybe two, before we get a viable replacement mm. technology. And you think Tesla is not investing in alternatives? Sure they are. Absolutely. But they're not going all in on them. They go- oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, if, if they- I know that they are investing in other technologies and they are funding a lot of research and development into batteries. Uh, so, is Panasonic. Um, it's, you know, and, and that's- it's probably no surprise then that's why that why Tesla partnered with Panasonic mm. uh, when they're building the Gigafactory. So yeah, it's it, it is a fascinating space, but the the truth is that lithium, yeah, and the way Tesla deals with the the safety thing, just by the way, is that they'll is they'll use standard um God, the number escapes me off the top of my head, um fifty eighteen fifty I'm trying to remember the size of the cells. They're they're slightly taller than a double A battery and slightly thicker, mm-hmm. but they look like a 
like a double A battery that someone stretched slightly in a stretching machine. Anyway, that kind of thing. And they'll put all of these and they stack them into into larger groups, but then they'll actually have a coolant flow to keep the temperature under control. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they they take that very seriously and they've added armor plating underneath the vehicle uh, so that you don't have damage from, you know, road object objects on the road being kicked up underneath the vehicle under high speed because the battery pack in a Tesla is, of course, right under the floor. So, which is good for your handling, right? It's low center of gravity as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, anyway, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what, yeah. At this point, yeah, at this point, I'm not really sure what the next- big technology in batteries is going to be because there are quite a few different battery chemistries being tried, but there's nothing at a level that it can be mass produced yet. And honestly, I, I don't see that happening um, in the, like maybe in the next five years, we'll see something that could be mass produced, but it's not going to be adopted widespread because it's going to be way too expensive. And, and by that time, even in the next five years, it's already happening. You know, the price of lithium cells has dropped uh, 80% in the last six years. Oh, wow. Um, I did not know. It's huge. Yeah. Oh, it's huge. Um, and honestly, it's going to continue to drop, not quite that at that rate. It'll, it's it's leveling off. But, yeah, if Tesla keep building gigafactories and, and Panasonic keep churning out battery cells at the rate they're doing it, even if there's a new technology, financially, it's not going to be of any interest to anybody until- it can be mass produced at that sort of cost. And raw material wise, lithium is is not a problem. Like we have enough of it. Well, technically, yes. It's just that it's hard to get to, uh, and it's hard to extract. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I believe the math was that we've only found one third or thereabouts, we've only located about one third of how much lithium there should be in the Earth. So. Mm-hmm. Where's the rest? We don't know yet. <laughs> but they've- Because, you know, the geologists- are, are, Yeah, okay. Electrical engineer, put my hand up. I don't know. <laughs> but they, 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 they reckon someone that knows more about geology than me, which is most people- um, <laughs> Well, I don't. <laughs> well, I don't either. So, they, they say that there's two thirds of it yet to be discovered. And they've done some math based on the chemical composition of the earth and said, well, there should be a lot more. We just don't know where it is yet. Mm -hmm. So, the known reserves of lithium will do us for a very long time. And one of the great things about lithium, rather like uh, aluminium, for example, is another really good example, is it's very highly recyclable. So, you can take a lithium battery and you can essentially extract- um, almost all, not all, obviously, you, you lose. I, I forget the figure, though. It's, I think it's like 5 or 6%. Um, so, I suppose given enough time over hundreds and hundreds of years, uh, eventually you'll, you'll probably run out of lithium. But it's going to be a long, long, long time. Even that's if, if everyone had an electric car and they were recycling their batteries every 20 years. So, you know. Very interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. Um yeah, well, I, I have a feeling we could talk about stuff for like hours, but I, we need to we need to stop at some point. Okay. So, well, why don't we wrap up with um like with your three suggestion suggestions, and that could be like either books or or um like blog posts or YouTube videos or whatever. Like three um three things that either made a, a big impression on on you or or like change the way change your life or you'd think i would have given that more thought because i knew that was coming um i okay <laughs> i'll start with St- i'll start with stephen covey and i know it's and um 
Do you know who Stephen Covey is? No. Okay. He was an inspirational speaker of sorts, and he was most famous for The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, yeah, yeah. I know that book, yeah. Yeah. So, I found the book to be um, quite tedious. Say the least. (laughs) So, yes. However, then I watched him doing uh, a a video course. I guess you call it a video course. What it was, was it was a series of presentations that he gave- uh, in theatres through when he was touring around the world. And this was 20 years ago. Well, I, I watched these. They were a collection of uh, VHS tapes. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we were watching these VHS tapes and um, he was giving each one of the habits and he had a 20-minute or so, maybe 30-minute thing on each of those habits describing um, the essence of each of them and giving examples and on stage. Is that available in non-VHS form, preferably on like on the internet? Yeah, you can find some of them on YouTube if you dig for it. Um, but the thing is about it uh, that I found is that Stephen Covey was very, very inspirational. And one of the things, one of the favorite, my favorite habits that's been most um, uh, transformational for me, or rather had the biggest impact on me, uh, was uh, was putting first things first. And the funny thing with putting first things first is that he had this demonstration um, that's been widely copied, but as far as I can tell, he was the one that originally originally came up with it. And the idea is that you get a glass or perspex uh, box uh, with 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 no lid on the top, so just four sides and a bottom. Mm-hmm. And you put there's there's two or three um, diameters of marbles, and you'll put the largest marbles you know in. And uh, sorry, the experiment starts where you, you tip the sand in first and you fill up the, the bottom third of it with sand. Then you put the, the, the next largest balls in on top of that. And then you try and fit the big balls in on top. And of course, it doesn't fit because, yeah. you know, but then what you do is you empty it out and start again. You put the big balls in first, then you put the next ones in and they slot in the holes in between. And then you pour the sand in and it fills in all the other gaps and then it fills it up perfectly to the top. And that's the whole concept behind, you know, putting those putting first things first is that if you put the big items in place first, the, the rest will follow. I love that idea. And I try to emulate that. I don't always succeed, but I try. So, Stephen Covey, definitely um, highly recommend that as well. Mm-hmm. Um, next thing I'll recommend is a podcast. I mentioned it before, uh, John Syracuse's um, Hypercritical. And Hypercritical to me is the essence of John Syracuse. And if you want to understand the guy as a person and the way he thinks and the things he likes, then that is by far the best way of doing it. Not ATP, not not any of the more recent stuff. The, the original quintessential Syracuse uh, was hypercritical. And I still- And it was the podcast that originally inspired me to want to do something like Pragmatic because I thought that that format could could work, um, which uh, Pragmatic has a lot in similar with, with, with hypercritical. But the thing that I enjoyed about hypercritical was the way that that John Syracuse was, um, he did a lot of research, which is something that I also believe very strongly in. And he wanted to create content that was accurate and correct. And he went to great lengths to make sure that it was. So, it is um, it is very, I found it very, very entertaining. Maybe it's not your cup of tea, but I, 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 uh, I found a lot of it very instructional, not necessarily for all of the content, 
Um, I'm not so thrilled by gaming controllers, for example, as he was, but that's okay. Um, the, or, or toaster ovens. That's another thing I wasn't that thrilled by, but that's okay. That's fine. To each their own. It's not that. It's the, it's the methodical way in which he looked at the problem. And it mirrors a lot of the way that I uh, look at things. And I used to work, uh, look at things like that. Uh, and since listening to Hypercritical, I've applied that more both in my personal and in professional life. And I think that's been of a big benefit to me. So, um, that's a uh, second one. Okay, third one. Um, this is going to sound a bit weird. I like Doctor Who. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, well, it doesn't sound weird. Well, I I like some some parts of, of, of Doctor Who. I like some of the some of the lines out of it. Some of the writers are really, you know, in some shows, it's just, like I said, bubblegum, but some of it's really quite deep. And every now and then, there's um, a few episodes and a few lines that sort of, like, stick in your mind. And one of those ones that sticks in my mind was uh, um, was one with Peter Capaldi in it, um, uh, Mummy on the Orient Express. And uh, at the very end of it, um, he said that sometimes the only choices you get are bad ones, but you still have to choose. And it's the sort of thing that I think that is the definition of life. And and I love that. And I love that. And I think that that, that helps me to put things in perspective and um, when everything gets uh, gets a bit much. That could be a tagline for causality, like another one. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got to tell you. Oh, yeah. Well, possibly. Yeah, <laughs> maybe. Um, anyway, um, thank you so much, John, for, for your time. Uh, this has been great. And um, yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed talking to you. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me on. It's been, uh, it's been a blast. Okay, thanks. Bye. Okay, bye. All right. This is the end of my interview with John. We could keep talking for hours, but I had to end it at some point. Anyway, you can keep listening to him by following any of his many podcast shows. And unlike his show, this is a new one. So please share it with your friends and followings. Uh, one way to do so is to rate, review, favorite, follow, like and subscribe or whatever it is you do in your podcast app of choice. If you enjoyed this show and want me to keep at it, please also support it via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash That's patreon.com slash P-A-R-P-A-S-B-O-D. By becoming a Patreon supporter, you will not only support this show, but also get some awesome stickers. You can see some photos of them on the Patreon page. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. We are at PairPassPod on all of them. You can submit your feedback there or just email me. All the links from this episode are in the show notes and on our website parallelpassion.com slash four. Thank you and have a passionate day. And is that bye? <laughs> Do you want to keep talking?